we have alluded throughout this podcast several times to EPM and impact metrics. So I, I did want to kind of cover that topic in a little more holistic way um, for, for, for our audience out there so that, you know, everybody can be on the same page about kind of what we're talking about. So um, this past Sunday, uh, and a hat tip to Andrew, Andrew Claudio, GMAC, who, who brought this to my attention, Dunks and Threes dropped their first batch or first release of EPM grades for the season using the small sample of games that we've seen so far. Um, so I do want to just kind of talk about in general what EPM is and kind of what one number impact metrics are and what they, what they mean and, and how you know, I and, and Jeff and others use them. Uh, so in general, impact metrics are basically like a symbol, a single number metric that gives you like a general estimate of how much value a player provides to their team. So it's, it's much different from anything like points and assists and shooting percentages and all that stuff, because it's essentially a summary of everything a player does and contributes, um, you know, on the court to either positively or negatively impact their team. And a lot of this stuff will not be captured by any kind of box score counting stat. Um, even, even, even player tracking data will not be able to capture a lot of the things that players do to impact the game in a positive or negative way. So that's what these kind of impact metrics attempt to do. And they're typically represented as uh, the impact that a player has on his team on his team's number of points or a point differential every 100 possessions. So if we say like, oh, this guy's a plus five EPM guy, that means that uh, it's estimated that every 100 possessions that player um, is estimated to be responsible for like a five point positive differential in the score. If I say he's a minus five EPM player, it's, it's the opposite, which would also mean he's probably out of the league. Um, if I said he's a minus five EPM player, there aren't many guys like that. Um, so yeah, there's, there's uh, a few key kind of aspects about impact metrics that make them a lot different from you know raw on off numbers so one is that impact metrics take into consideration the strength of a player's teammates that he's sharing the court with and also the strength of the opponents that he's playing against so for example if a player like exclusively comes off the bench like i mean we talked about quickly in this regard this is not the case for him because he started a ton um, but if a player comes exclusively off the bench and, and essentially only crushes opposing bench players, then impact metrics take this into account so you can still directly compare uh, compare them with starters. So it's not really a, a strong argument to say, oh, you know, that guy's a plus three, P, three EPM, but he comes off the bench. So that's, you know, that's that's why it's like shaded that way. Like that's not, you can compare them directly. Um yeah, and then and then the final point I wanted to make about this is really important. Um, impact metrics essentially are kind of assumed to imply causality, and I, I may get pushback from people on this, but it, I think this is a really important point because when we look at like on-off numbers, they do not imply causality whatsoever. Um, you know, like I, I looked up this example, just the first person that came off the top of my head last year, um, Contavious Caldwell Pope who is a really good player, had an on-off differential of plus 17.3. So um, 
So this doesn't mean that that the Nuggets were 17 points better per 100 possessions when he was on the court because of him, right? So, so for uh, example, a lot of that probably has to do with the fact that 81% of the time he was on the court, he was playing with Nikola Jokic. Only 19% of the time that KCP was ever on the court last year, Jokic was on the bench. So it's probably not like because of KCP that the Nuggets were so much better when he was on the court. Um, and, and honestly, in some cases, and this is not the ca- case with KCP because he is an excellent player. In some cases, you can your team can perform well despite you being on the court, right? You could just be you could be a, a hindrance to the team, but the rest of the team around you or, or a superstar player is so good that they still find a way to, to, to make it have a positive impact when you're on the court. Um, so this is just like, you know, figuring out who is actually responsible for success or failure of the team is like the key thing in analyzing basketball, in my opinion. It's like it all comes down to responsibilities, uh, responsibility. And um, it's, it's just something that box score numbers or counting stats or even shooting percentages or even like true shooting percentage, all of that. It cannot help you know who is responsible for success or failure of a team. Um, it's the thing that I think that most people miss when analyzing basketball. And, you know, you can see like certain counting stats and that might make us make assumptions about how valuable that player is. But in a vacuum, like most counting stats don't really tell you anything about a player's value. You need contextual information. You need to understand a lot more. Um, I do have I wanted to give one quick example just to talk about causality. So um, determining causality is super, super tricky in, in, in literally everything um, in, in any science. And that's like the goal of, of most science is to determine causality. Um, so here's an example. Like if you have a cold and you take some vitamin C and then you feel better the next day, you might conclude like, I feel better because I took vitamin C, right? Um, so you might think that vitamin C is super valuable and cures colds. However, you don't know the counterfactual situation which would be like, what would happen if you didn't take vitamin C? So imagine if we could like reverse time and and then you don't take the vitamin C, but then you still feel better the next day. Then we would now kind of understand like vitamin C probably had nothing to do with why you felt better. So there was no causal relationship there. Um, and this is, I think, a mistake that happens all the time. We see like a player score 30 points and then the team wins. And it's like, well, the, the, the team won because that player scored 30 points. That doesn't mean that. We don't know. We need more information to be able to like assess causality there. It could be that that team, that player like really almost shot his team out of the game and, and the way that they were playing almost cost them the game, but they won in spite of that player. Like we just don't know. Um, so that's kind of the the high level description I want to give of like impact metrics and what they try to do and and kind of the goals and like how I use them and in, in, in terms of like basketball analysis. My favorite example of misunderstood or um, yeah misunderstood causality is Mike McCarthy, the head coach of now the Dallas Cowboys, but the person, the human being who was at one point in his life paid millions of dollars to come up with a game plan for Aaron Rodgers, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. One week he said that he saw a stat that said that teams that run the ball 20 or more times in the second half win 90% of the time. So his goal is to run the ball 20 or more times in the second <laughs> half every t- every game because that will mean they win 90% of the time. 
<laughs> so McCarthy's and, sitting there down 28 points. He's like, you know what yeah. we need to do to win this game? We, we need to we run just the need, ball. We just need 20 plus runs, guys. That's all we need. <laughs> I just remember watching oh. that and being like, holy shit. Like, oh my God. Like, and then that's awesome. Like, that just goes into a whole that you go down that rabbit hole. It's like, this is a billion dollar franchise. This is their whole, the whole franchise is being good. That's it. That's the, the whole most of that's where all the revenue comes from. <laughs> Playoff games. They were like, let's give millions of dollars to this guy who doesn't know what the fuck. Like, I'm sure he's good at, I don't know. So that's another interesting thing is like, uh, is people always talk about, oh, well, there, there's stuff you don't know that these guys know. And this is perfect example of your counterfactual. Nobody knows what it would look like if 30 people who thought like we did were all head coaches. You know, the, the, nobody, you, so you can't argue that, oh, they have this intangible thing that you'll never have. And like, you know, I don't think I'd be a good coach. I joke about it all the time. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Julius Randle and me, me walking up to Julius Randle like, hey, can you give more effort? He'd laugh in my face. Like, no, I'm, I wouldn't be a good coach. I wouldn't be able to earn the respect. I, I get that. That's fine. <laughs> um my point is, is that there's no there's no proof that that people who are more analytically minded thinkers wouldn't be good coach and that you need this macho the only proof the only reason that proof the, the proof that those guys succeed is because it keeps being reinforced over and over again because they're the only guys that get hired right yeah <laughs> um so yeah i mean that shines a light on both flawed causality and the need for you know a counterfactual the only way to determine that you know a certain coach type of coach is optimal is to actually have a large sample size of all the different types of personalities and see how they yeah. coach and see how they mesh with players yeah yeah 100 percent. i mean uh, that that is the the whole issue and so you know in science we do randomized control trials to try to essentially emulate a scenario in which you do have this counterfactual because we can't like, you know, really the way we would figure out if coaches, you know, a type of coach was more successful than another is that we would run, you know, uh, you know, dozens or hundreds of seasons with one type of coach. And then we'd like go backwards and run those same seasons with the other type of coach and then compare the results. Obviously we can't do that. So like, you know, that's what randomized control trials are meant to simulate a scenario in which we were doing that by kind of matching uh you know characteristics and criteria across two groups such that they look similar enough that we can assume that the outcomes um if the outcomes are different it's related to the 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 independent variable that we're trying to measure this has just gotten like too i just caught myself in the middle of like talking about independent variables and i'm like this has gone a little too far <laughs> um, just sort of reel it in this is yeah. why expressing a certainty about anything is so misguided and you know if you're out there with an open mind just keep that and don't don't just the smartest people are the less the least sure i can guarantee you that the people who are super yeah. confident in Pretty much anything, just anything from the sports, politics, just any people out there who are just sure they have the world figured out and they have all the answers. They're probably not as smart as they think they are. And the people who are open minded and are seeking out alternative viewpoints and just trying to gather as much data as possible, they're the people you should cling to and you should listen to and interact with, not not just listen to and, and share your opinions with. Right. 
Yeah, I, and I totally agree with that. And if 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 you'll notice, like when I have disagreements with people, oftentimes it tends to be that like it's hard to pin me down on a, because oftentimes my point is just like we're not sure that that's the case, right? Like that's that's normally where I'm coming from. It's like how do you know that that's the case? Like I you need to have strong evidence to support any claim that you have, and. I'm just generally always going to push for the evidence to show me if, if someone has a really strong claim, oh, this is how it is. This is what it is. I would just want to see what that evidence looks like um, and then measure the veracity of that evidence to determine whether I think that that's like a, an accurate claim that's supported by the evidence or not. Um, as far as EPM, so EPM estimated plus minus, uh, you know, when when kind of these impact metrics were tested for predictive value. Um, meaning, you know, the ones that have the least amount of prediction error, um, EPM tends to win those, those, those tests in terms of like being the less, uh, the least errorful of them. So EPM is, you know, currently, I would say the best one number impact metric, um, that is publicly available. I'm sure NBA teams have, have, have better, better data, but in terms of public, uh, publicly available EPM is probably the best. So EPM dropped their uh, their ratings um, or grades, or if you would have it. Um, is there anything that stuck out to you when you kind of took a look at this that you you wanted to talk about? Surprises, like things that don't seem right, maybe due to like noise, uh, due to small samples. Um, anything that really stuck out to you? Yeah, I think you have to start with Scotty Barnes. Honestly, that's. And I know you have a personal stake in this. Um, that's this. That's not going to end well for you if this keeps up. But um, yikes! Um, you know, I, I got to be honest. I'm a little gun shy with putting out takes like that on the internet because I, I just know how the world works, and I, I, I don't know what they're what I have out there in the world. But oh man, I'd be nervous if I was you. <laughs> That is a strong take that you made. <laughs> that, are you? So I'm, I'm assuming you're referring to my take that I'd rather have Quentin Grimes than Scotty Barnes. Is that correct? Is that, okay. So I just didn't. I didn't want to fully throw you under the bus. I no, was just. No, no. I'm, I was kind I'm of, totally. I was kind I'm, of pushing you a little bit towards the bus, but I wasn't rolling <laughs> you under it. <laughs> that that's totally fine. Like I I I don't I don't have like you know it's not going to hurt my feelings or make me feel d dumb or insecure. If that t take turns out to be wrong, like that's fine. We, everybody has wrong takes. Like that's not, I, I'm not, I'm not ashamed or crying, uh, crawling into a hole as a result. Um, I, I, I don't think that the performance that we've seen from Scotty Barnes was like obvious or like you could see him that he was going to ascend to have this performance in this early part of the season. <laughs> like I, 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 I don't feel like it was crazy. Scotty Barnes is shooting like 40% from three this year. He shot 30% on low volume his rookie season. He shot 28% on low volume his, his second year in the league. He's shooting 40% on, on relatively high volume this year. Like I, you know, I, I you can't project if a guy's just going to like learn how to shoot to me, that's like the, the hardest thing to do. So I, is that, you can't, you can't, but I'm sorry to just sort of hop yeah, yeah, in here. Ahead. Let's give him a little bit more credit than that. He's rebounding more. 
he's assisting yeah. more. No, no, no. I'm not her. saying that's the only reason why he's been good. I'm just saying that's an example of like a reason why he's been really good. I also want to say as far as like his EPM, like you're right. He He's had impact in a lot of other ways. Like his assist percentage has gone through the roof and, um, you know, he's, he's in a more of a playmaking role. Um, his usage has increased. A lot of things he's doing better. Also, uh, in terms of EPM, he has a defensive EPM of plus 3.2. That is number one in the entire NBA, like a defense of plus 3.2. Like, I don't think Scotty Barnes is a plus 3.2 defensive player in the league. Like that would make him an all time great perimeter defender if he was to like maintain that moving forward. I don't think that that's the case. I mean, we're talking about a 13 game small sample. I think Scotty Barnes has played well enough that I can say he's going to be really good. Do I think he's going to be in the MVP conversation? No, no, not at all. According to EPM, he's he's sixth right now in EPM um, behind LeBron James, Steph Curry, SGA, Nikola Jokic, and Embiid. Like, is, is that the tier of player that he's in? You can tell me. If it's, is that what you believe? Since, you know... I want I want you to be uh, under the bus with me if that's uh, you can you can now just say that that's your opinion if it is. No, I don't think he's this good. But I do think the fact that he's capable of a stretch like this is impressive in its own right. That needs to be given, you know, and defensively I I do think this is this goes back to the thing we talked about earlier in the podcast. I don't think it's totally reasonable to say, oh, well, he's never defended this well before, so he must not be this level of defender, and it must be mo- mostly noise. Well, he was known for defense coming out of college. Everybody, The reason he was drafted so high was because of his defense, potential defensive ceiling and his versatility, his ability to, to stay out with wings on the perimeter and also go big and to, you know bang on the inside. Defensive EPM is telling us he's finally fulfilling that. He's, you know, he's a 22-year-old who is in his third year. I don't think it's, I don't think it's outrageous to say that, Oh, maybe he just is making a leap and maybe this is just, maybe he's actually closer to this defensive impact than you're giving credit to. I think, um, I, I, I notice a little bit of a trend. I think you're kind of misconstruing what I'm saying with some of this stuff. Like, I don't mean he hasn't played at, you know, at a high defensive level in his first two years and his age 20 and 21 seasons. Therefore that's the player that he is. And he's not going to get better at that thing. Like I never mean that. What I, what I'm saying is that I tend to not believe that a player is like the greatest of all time or in a category of the greatest of all time at a particular thing, unless I've seen it across a really large sample. Um, that you know that 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 really is my position because oftentimes we're talking about a thing where it's like you know uh, even take rj barrett like he's shooting whatever it is 47 percent from three i don't know if it it probably went up after the most recent game because i think it was three or four um he's shooting close to 50 percent from three i'm not saying hey because rj hasn't shot really well throughout his career that means he can't be a better improved three-point shooter at you know at 23 years old I'm saying RJ Barrett is not a 50% three-point shooter. I'm saying Scotty Barnes is very likely not the best defensive perimeter defensive player of all time. Like that's that's what I'm and those claims I don't feel like need a lot to substantiate. I think that the prior and the the kind of 
the kind of assumption is always going to be like that height is just so astronomically unlikely that that's what we can assume until proven otherwise. And that's kind of what I'm saying. I'm never saying like this guy is 22 years old. He couldn't be better than he has been. Of course, like guys make leaps. There are going to be a, a number of players every year that are going to make a leap. Like that is almost like guaranteed for sure. Um, and Scotty Barnes could be one of those guys. He could be a great defensive player. He, I don't think he's going to be one of the greatest defense, like perimeter defensive players of all time. That, that's 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 where, where I feel like that's a very low bar that I have to cross to to kind of say that. Yeah, for sure. But even if you reduce his defensive impact by thirty three percent, he's still a really good defender who improved from last season. Yeah, for sure. And that's a more that's a more reasonable defensive impact based on you know not being one of the best defenders ever. Um, right. And my point is is that given his um, pedigree and given his profile, I don't, and the fact that he's capable of putting together a 13 game stretch where EPM has him in that level of defensive impact. I don't think it's a leap to say, okay, well clearly he's gotten a lot better. And even when his impact regresses a little bit, he's still going, he's left himself room to still be a very, very impactful player. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think that, I think that he is likely a very good to excellent uh, defensive player in the NBA. And, and, and I agree with you, like even a 13 game sample is not nothing. And to be able to put together the level of impact that he has across 13 games is extremely meaningful. Like I, I, I totally agree with that. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree too much with what you said besides that kind of like where I'm coming from is like, I don't think that this player can th- is, I would assume that they would cross this like amazing threshold unless I see it across more than even one season. Cause I will say like, for instance, OG and Anobi um, had a similar EPM grade across 67 games last year um, and has not performed to that standard so far this year. And, you know, very likely he never will make it to that standard again. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I just am always going to kind of bank on like some level of regression when you see some of these high heights. And I think I think honestly, this is an interesting conversation because I think what's what's interesting is also and you might have mentioned this about something else in the past. But what's interesting is like the order in which things happen. So we if we've seen. Um, if Scotty Barnes was like kind of like bad defensively for 13 games, you know, I think people would be dogpiling on him. And then if he was like this level for another 13 game stretch, I don't think people would be like, wow, this is like a transcendent, you know, MVP caliber player because they would have the context of the, the kind of, they would be primed to to believe that like he's struggling or like a struggling player or something like that. I think it makes a big difference when you start the season in a certain way and people have a difficult time kind of adjusting from that starting point that they viewed you at like early on in the season. I think we see that kind of on a regular basis. But also those two examples aren't perfectly apples to apples because there's a huge difference between the first 13 games and the second 13 games. And the difference is that the first 13 games are coming off a five-month offseason where you practice and you train and you improve. So if you it's much harder to go from what Scotty Barnes did last year. Like let's just say, you know, I, I don't I'm not looking at his EPM, I'm not looking at other stuff, but let's just say Scotty Barnes 
you know, he did that, he did did that, and then the first 13 games, he just plateaued, and he was just that again for the first 13 games, or he was a little bit worse. And then the second 13 games, he did what he actually did in these first 13 games. It would be much easier to say, okay, this is probably a little bit noisy. He's not this good. Because he didn't have, and this isn't coming off an entire offseason. It's not, you know, it's just a middle-of-season improvement, which, granted, do happen sometimes. But I think it's more likely for a player to improve after an entire offseason of training and preparing. And I, I don't think those two things are the same. Yeah, I, I I just don't agree with that whatsoever. I, I, I just, I, I would need to see some kind of evidence that suggests that, like, when a player makes a leap, that is noticeable early on in the early goings of the season coming off the back of like their training regimen in the off season. Like I have, I just have no reason to currently believe that that's the case. Like I, I don't, I don't think it, it's for sure not the case, but I just, maybe that might be our intuition. I, I, I don't even, it's not even my intuition, but like, even if it was uh, intuitively made sense, like, okay, they, they just came off of the off season, they're training, they're ready to go. They start the season some of what they've done should translate immediately. Even if that was our intuition, I would need to see some evidence that that's the case for me to buy into that. I don't, I don't know that to be true. I don't have the evidence offhand. So, you know, I guess that's just going to be one of those areas we agree to disagree, but to me, it's overwhelmingly intuitive. Um, because I, yeah, go ahead, that's, go ahead. that's how you improve as a basketball. That's at anything is this, you know, if you're going to improve as a shooter, playing in basketball games and shooting the same shots that you, I don't know, I'm a golfer. I'm, I'm not, I'm not getting better at golf by going out and playing 18 holes randomly, you know, and I know I'm replicating the rounds and I'm actually practicing the shots. But if I wanted to go from, you know, currently I'm like a two handicap. If I want to go from a two to a scratch or a plus handicap, the only way I would do that is if I practiced for three months. And to be honest, I'm going to be a little closed minded here. I do agree that there's a small percent chance that I need the counterfactual and maybe just playing is enough to improve, but I'm very, very skeptical of that. And I am feel very strongly that the best path to me improving as a golfer would be going to the driving range and practicing as much as possible. Oh, I think that, yes, I think you're, misconstruing my argument like i'm not saying that the best way to get better is by just by playing I, i'm saying you could get better in the off season but it doesn't translate immediately like i don't think it's like i got better like let's say you were working on your golf game you had an instructor you were on the driving range you just really put it all on you know on the line in the off season then you came back and you started playing golf right with your buddies or whoever you play with it doesn't mean that because you did all that work you know, your first day out with your buddies, like you're going to crush it. Like you might not crush it that game. You might not crush it that day. You might not crush it for five days. It might take a little while or, um, you know, you might just be in a bad stretch early on. And then, you know, all that training and, and improvement comes to fruition later on. Like it, it's not a, a function of like, well, you have to just play and then you get better. It's that who knows when that really like kicks in. I mean, <clears throat> a guy, an example of this may be, I don't know if he is coming off injuries or anything like that, <clears throat> excuse me, um, is LaMelo Ball. I feel like LaMelo Ball started off the season really, really badly. Um, does that mean he wasn't training this offseason and he wasn't trying to get better? Like he's been playing at a phenomenal level of late. Like 
I wouldn't say that, you know, he didn't, he wasn't training hard enough and that's why he didn't come out the season like immediately extremely good. Um, I think that's just the nature of how things go when you, when you're playing a sport at such a high level. Yeah, but it's not, not everybody improves every season from season to season. That's not what you Exactly. See. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's my point. It's like improvement is not linear and doesn't like take place in a very like laid out constructive way. I work really hard this off season. I'm 22. I work really hard. I come back game one. I'm really good. And I show everything that I've worked on and it translates immediately. Like, I don't, I don't think that that's like a pattern that we, we see occur every time, you know? Right. But what I'm saying is that if you have two samples, one where player A plays like his past level the first 13 games of the season and then has a 13-game stretch that is an outlier level of production. And then player B has, you know, he plays one way headed into a season and then the first 13 games are outlier level of production. I would bet on player B, player B's progression or positive regression or whatever you want to call it, being more authentic a slightly higher percentage of the time than player A. Um yeah, I, I yeah, I, I, I hear your point. I just I don't I don't have any evidence to for me to kind of conclude that. Like I said, the reason I brought Lamello is just because, you know, he's at the age where you would expect him to improve, you know, pretty rapidly or like, you know, get better, you know, season after season. And we didn't see that right out the gates from him, but we have seen it of late. So like, would you say that that LaMelo's improvement then is probably like less real than somebody like Scotty Barnes who showed it immediately? Isn't LaMelo ball over the same exact sample size as Scotty Barnes in like the top 30 in EPM? <laughs> yeah, but it's or almost top, top all 30. from like an amazing stretch, like a, a, like a, essentially like a six game stretch. Like I, basically he was, because uh, you could actually, this is a good point too for the audience. Like if you go to dunks and threes, you can also see like a progression of EPM, like in terms of like rolling average, like a five game moving average. And you'll see like LaMelo was like, started off like relatively bad and then like ramped up like over the last like six or seven games. Um, and even if LaMelo is not a good example, I mean, I can find a guy who's like 23, 22 or something like that. Who's like not playing particularly well right now. Let's say uh, Franz Wagner, let's say, or let's say, um, you know, Jalen green or something like that. Right. Like these guys are, have not played particularly well so far this season. If they were to like, you know, 20 games from now go on an insane 15 game stretch. Would you say that that's less likely to be legitimate with regard to their um, ascendance as, as players in the NBA, as somebody who started off the season really well? Well, I just think young players improve mo most of the time anyway. So none of those players improving would surprise me. Um, but I do think that, I, I do think that if Franz is playing at a similar level to how he was playing last season, like if he's playing just way worse than last season, I would feel pretty comfortable being like, oh, okay, this is kind of a noisy stretch. And we're getting into a much more intangible conversation where neither one of us is going to be able to 
effectively prove anything. So if your whole right, point the, is that nothing the burden is on you because you're making the claim. I'm just saying I don't I don't have any reason to believe the claim that you're making the claim. So I don't have to prove anything like if, in this discussion. I just think that we're entering into there's no way to prove it. So I don't how can you have a claim that you have no way to prove? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> the, I, I'm just saying in th in theory you could th this is such a this is such a um vague i guess this is such a vague like ambiguous yeah, yeah this is this is just so ambiguous and there's so many there's so many factors i just don't think anything would be enough for you so i i, I think i'm i just think we're just going to agree to disagree i guess um i mean no i i think that there could be an enough for me so like the enough for me would would be like some kind of data that shows that let's say young players below a certain threshold um, when they perform really well early on in a season that is more highly correlated to like success or, or their peak as a player than if they but, but how young how many games we're, we're just we would we'd have to doing... define all of that we'd have to define okay all of that. but and i haven't could... even but yeah. i'm just literally let's reel this back in and start with scotty barnes yeah, yeah. You know, and go back to Scotty Barnes. I don't think it's unreasonable to conclude that a 22-year-old progressed to a certain point and that work he did in the offseason would show show itself immediately starting a new season. To me that is more slightly more meaningful than if it happened during a random 13, I'm just making up 13 games because that's what we're working with right now, but it could yeah, have been yeah, sure, 20 sure. games. Right. To me, that is no, that is slightly more likely to be meaningful than a 20-game stretch in February and March. I'm not saying that if Jalen Green has a really good 20-game stretch in February or March, then that's just, oh, it doesn't mean anything. No, I'm just saying that on the whole, in a vacuum, I think it is slightly more meaningful if it just comes out of the gate because it's coming on the heels of all this time you had to not master your craft, but improve your craft. Yeah, I, I, I totally hear you. And I just, I, I guess we're just my, to summarize my opinion on that, I think that that's your intuition, which is reasonable. Um, but I think that there's many times when our intuitions are not, correct or don't lead us in the right direction and i would just need to see some kind of like evidence to support that perspective that would make me be like believe it to be true um and the fact that what i'm like saying what i'm saying with that w regarding yeah. the evidence how would we how would we even define it would we separate like okay this is this is how it happens for year two to year three guys okay well not every year two to year three guys created equally what about guys who came out as seniors as opposed to guys who came out as yeah. freshmen what about, is, what about guys who like supporting what guys? my my view though my, my my view is is essentially agnostic towards this perspective and you're it, saying not like you would always have to be agnostic it's not supporting your view because Scotty Barnes was a top five pick who was 19 years old when he came out of the draft. That's different than just turning it into a, how do we create a vacuum? This isn't a scenario that exists in a vacuum. This is a very yeah. specific scenario. Right. My Exactly. Yes. So my point is that you can never prove this perspective. 
You could never prove it to be true. You could never provide evidence that says that this is true, meaning that you are holding an opinion, a position that is unprovable, which, which I like that that's fine. You can have that, <clears throat> you can have that belief, but it just doesn't like, we just won't know. And so it's, you know, I, there's no reason for me to believe it just because you do, you know what I mean? Like I have no reason to, to believe it. It's your intuition. It's not mine. And I have no reason to believe it. You know what I mean? I do, but you take that line, you take that line of arguing to its logical endpoint, and you could say that about anything. And then it's like, what's the point of talking about? No, anything? you would, you would, for <laughs> other things, you would be able to provide evidence for them, right? Like if I was to say, I think Nikola Jokic is the best center of all time, then I could provide a, a, a heaps of evidence to support that perspective. And that would, you know, ideally be able to convert people who don't, who, whose intuition doesn't follow. So like that would be how I would argue something. I would say, <clears throat> here's my argument, here's my claim, and here's the evidence for it. And I would provide the evidence, and then you would look at the veracity of the evidence, and then you would say, oh yeah, that shit, that 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 stuff, that evidence really backs up that claim. I think that that's a I'm moving closer to that claim than you are, or than I was initially. But you can't so do be, that for me, so I, I have to no be, reason to, to be move. clear because I don't have a spreadsheet full of third Hashtag year twenty. I don't have a spreadsheet full of third year, 22 year old top five picks improving at the start of their third year that just dismisses the claim. Like that's, that's not that you as someone who's watched the NBA your entire life, that's not just like, Oh yeah, that kind of does happen all the time. And that's just a totally normal thing. All right. So, I mean, we you have need, to really, you to- have to really narrow down on what the claim is though. Like you're like, I'm not saying that 22 year olds don't improve going into their 20. Like your claim is specifically my- that they would show their improvement immediately in the season. And that's more meaningful than if they show their improvement at a later point in the season. That, that was, that's the claim that I'm disputing. Yeah. Like at the margin, it's slightly more meaningful. Okay, I, I there, there's no way to, to to provide you would have to provide evidence for that to support that claim. Like what? How how else would I believe your claim? Just based on what? What what would I use to say? I that's not my intuition, right? It's your intuition. It's not my intuition. What mm. would I use in order for me to change my view to say that I think that that is true? Like how can I do that? Yeah, I guess you wouldn't. So as I said ten minutes ago, I'm happy to just agree to disagree. <laughs> Yeah, that that that's that's just my point. It's like I have no reason to change my view on it. My view is that I'm a, I'm agnostic towards it. I don't believe it's true. I don't believe it's not true. I just don't know. And you believe it's true. And so for me to be like, yeah, I do believe it's true. I would need to see something to like push me in that direction. But that part of it doesn't even really matter. My my main the main thrust of my point is that it's not unreasonable to me that Scotty Barnes got a lot better as a basketball player. I, I agree with that. It, that I, that I agree ha- with. I, I don't think it's like semantical. I think it's like what it comes down to. It's like we, because I could just say like, well, my intuition is like whatever I have. And then you would say, well, mine is not. And I'd be like, well, we just agree to disagree. Like, you know, it's like we have to be able to, 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 to have some substance to say like why I believe this is true. And here's my evidence to support it. Like, I don't think we mm-hmm. can just like say like, my, like I could say my intuition is that like players work really hard in the off season, young players work really hard in the off season. And then they need like 20 games of like game speed 
to like be able to integrate what they've learned into that environment. And so I think actually when we see players like make their leap 20 games into a season, I think that that's more reflective of a legitimate jump that shows that they're integrating what they've learned. And early season success is just a, a function of like, you know, luck of or, more, of more variance. Or, or, or variance. Yeah. So that, that could be my intuition. And it's like, you'd be like, yeah. well, I don't agree with it. And I'd be like, well, why I do <laughs> like, you know, like, where are we? we yeah. don't... <laughs> that's, I, where, that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, no, I get that. I think, I think you're more right than I am thinking about it more. Yeah. I, uh, let, let's maybe let's talk about like one more thing as far as like things that we've noticed from EPM. Um, because uh, well, I said my guy who who jumped out to you. There's yeah, plenty of interesting players. There's plenty of interesting players to pick out. Um, I, you know, I think, yeah, I'm. I, I was. I would say, Nikola Jokic. No, I'm just kidding. He's just the same. <laughs> the best. He's not the, number one though. Look at it. Look at Embiid finally being the impact it guy. It just updated from today. Uh, I guess Jokic had a poor defensive performance and his. His defensive EPM sunk below uh, uh, league average, which has dropped him down below Embiid in the early goings. Um, I think I want to cite Tyrese Halliburton um, is a player I want to cite. So, so uh, getting myself in trouble with Knicks fans is going to be... I was literally team. about to say that. Your, your mission is to get banned from Knicks Twitter. <laughs> It is going to be a theme. Um, Tyrese Halliburton currently has an offensive EPM of plus 7.4. Just to put into context, uh, you know, last year, players who were 7.4 or above on offensive EPM, Nikola Jokic and Damian Lillard. Um, The previous year, only Nikola Jokic. Uh, The previous year, Nikola Jokic and Steph Curry. And the previous year, no one. <laughs> James Harden had the highest in 2020 with a 7.2 offensive EPM. So speaking of, you know, blips and, you know, uh, variance and, and other factors, noise that, that, that come into play. Do I think Tyrese Halliburton is one of the greatest offensive impact players ever? No, I don't think so. But I do think he has demonstrated to be an incredible offensive engine to a team. Um, not only is his EPM, his offensive EPM plus 7.4, which would be historically great. He also has a 47.6 assist percentage, which is completely absurd. Um, and even though I don't necessarily care about like assists specifically as a stat, that is just a, a clear demonstration of the amount of responsibility that he has um, as a ball handler. And the amount that his um, choices and decisions on the basketball court dictate the, you know, offensive results for that team. And on top of that, he only has an 11.4 turnover percentage, which would be, you know, about league average. To have that level of responsibility um, for the offense and have that few turnovers essentially to be driving uh, an offensive team uh, to be driving a team's entirety of their offense. Um, it's just, it's incredible. Like how he's played so far this season. It's incredible. He would be to me clearly a top three MVP candidate right now um, or, or top three or t- to five MVP candidates. Um, yeah. And I just think he is an incredible 
offensive player. I, I think it's like undeniable. And um, yeah, I mean, like I said, obviously this is over 11 game sample. Do I think he's going to be at this level for the whole season? No, I think a coming down to earth for him will look like, you know, a plus five or something EPM. Um, which is actually uh, around what he was last year. So I think there will be con- some consistency there. And I think that we're just seeing what we're seeing to, um, in the early goings this season is a validation and a reinforcement of, you know, the impact that he's had uh, on his team and, and, and how good an offensive player that he is. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, just what he's doing offensively across the board, true shootings up assist percentage somehow is up turnover percentage is down despite his usage increasing he's rebounding more he's just doing everything better so far um i do think Halliburton is a really interesting um i know we're trying to stick with you know purely objective impact data but i do think he's an interesting case study and i know i don't i think this just applies to everyone i think everybody knows about the Halliburton versus brunson debate Right. And I think that Halliburton versus Brunson is interesting to me because it's kind of the poster for 82 game impact versus what you can do when you're matched up against Um, and what you can do, you know, maybe in a single series, maybe a single playoff series. Because when I watch Tyrese Halliburton, great shooter, obviously amazing passer gets into the paint, forces, collapses. I'll be very curious to see if his impact holds when he's scouted against because he has no interest in scoring at the second level at all. And to me, that could have a more intangible negative effect on his overall impact than in, in the playoffs and in, against great defense. He's kind of, not kind of, he's a better passing better just better offensive version of what i was talking about with Emmanuel quickly um earlier because when defenses scout and realize that he's either trying to get to the rim or trying to shoot a three and they realize that he has no interest in shooting from you know 10 to 20 feet they're gonna let him snake into the paint they're going to fight over his screens and trail and then they're just going to take away the rim and if he doesn't have an answer to that, I think we could see him struggle. So I have no way or interest in refuting what you said about how amazing he's been to start the season. I think he's an amazing basketball player. But purely in terms of his future development and him evolving as a basketball player, I think the next step for him, obviously defense is a totally – I mean, he's a bad defender. He's a bad yeah, defender. I, right I didn't talk about defense um, for, for he, a purpose. He, he, <laughs> yeah, he, he's got to get better at defense, obviously. Um, even, just, even just do what we've seen from Brunson this season. I mean, Brunson's not good at defense, but he's trying, and he's in the right spots a lot, which is 75% of the battle. Um Halliburton's a mess defensively. But as far as offensive improvement goes, I think the next step for him is adding more variety to how he scores so that he forces a wider range of collapses and a wider range of attention because that's how he maintains his passing impact and his elevating of teammates. Um, and now I'm worried when I make claims like this, you know, if I had, no, I don't have proof that, you know, being a better score at the second level will elevate him. But that is my natural intuition from watching basketball that 
I think there's a chance he's going to be a more exploitable offensive player than some of his peers due to his reluctance to shoot or uh, um, impact the game from that mid-range. Yeah, so I, I mean, no, I, I think that's a definitely valid point. Um, I think that that is kind of the only weakness that I see from his offensive game besides like, you know, maybe he doesn't have the best ability to isolate and take someone off the dribble and just like score on them at will. But I think I, I, I don't know why he would need to necessarily because they can just run screens for him um so i don't i I think he can isolate a a really slow-footed defensive player that might switch on to him after a screen so to me like that is probably the primary weakness i will say at this you know at the same time like he is i i I don't think this is sustainable to be clear but but you know from 8 to 16 feet he is shooting uh 58 percent so far this season um so he is really crushing from that kind of like closer mid-range so far uh, in the early goings um but i do think it's still a weakness and i think that that's like what teams are going to give him they're going to kind of let him get to that close into the paint and then see what he does from there um because last year he actually shot 40 percent from that 8 to 16 foot range which is not very good and which teams would happily welcome him um right down here into this 8 to 16 foot range and see what he can do so I, I, I totally agree that that's a, an area where he needs to um, continue to develop. I will say he has developed in that, quote unquote, developed. I mean, it's only been 11 games, but he has performed really well in that area. And it's kind of funny. You compared him in, in this way to Emmanuel Quickly. It's, it's also where Emmanuel Quickly has had his improvement so far, um, you know, at this stage of the season. So we'll see if he's able to keep that up. Um, you know, he is clearly a 40% three point shooter. I have no idea how with his release, I, I don't know how that's like consistent, but so wild, it doesn't make sense to me in terms of like his ability to be so consistent with that shot, um, shooting 41% from three in his career on, you know, 1173 point attempts. So I think he's clearly a, a tremendous three point shooter, um, borderline elite. And I don't know how, but he is. And um, yeah, I, I think that, that that is the weakness if you're trying to say we're going to game plan for him. But if he figures that out, as you know, he has so far early in the season, I don't know how you stop him as an offensive engine. I really I don't actually see another recourse. Especially when in the starting lineup, I, I'm not going to say they go five out, but they have five willing three-point shooters at all yeah. times in the starting lineup. So the space is immaculate. He's working with way more space than Jalen Brunson is, to be to be fair to Brunson. Um, and, yeah, I mean, once – if he is willing to pull up from 15 feet and the big who's in drop has to respect that, once he's doing that, you just – because when, when he's either pulling up from three, he's – pulling up and you're from, from 15 feet and shooting, you know, you just said 58% from mid range. That's lethal. Or he's, you know, reading where the help is coming from and starting that, starting that read and react that, you know, Knicks fans will be very familiar with. Um, and he's very good at that. That's why he has over a 50% assist percentage. Uh, is there any worry for you from a, a, I don't think it matters this year. I don't think any Pacers fans have, delusions of winning a championship but is there any concern from you um in the macro that he's too ball dominant i I know he's a great shooter but he doesn't seem to love shooting off the catch unless it's a wide open shot at least from what i watch 
Yeah, I think that's a good question. So I, I honestly, I was kind of watching in um, FIBA for this exact thing because I was I was curious about that myself. Um, he, I think he's a really good off ball player. Um, and as far as shooting off the catch, this year, I mean, he sh- definitely shoots pull ups at a much higher rate. This year, he's shooting fifty three percent on catch and shoot threes, and I don't think he's like again. I don't think he's like a fifty three percent catch and shoot <clears throat> three point shooter, which would obviously be absurd and and and, and break all kinds of uh, abilities to fathom what what that would look like. But you know, last year he shot forty percent on catch and shoot threes. I think I think he is a really good catch and shoot player. I think he can be a easily like plug and play off ball guy. I think I do think his best. Um, impact is going to come from him being on the ball, kind of like we talked about Trey Young. I think he's like a better version of Trey Young in that way because his best impact comes from being on the ball and being the guy running pick and rolls, and, uh, running spread pick and rolls, and, and and shooting threes, getting into the paint, throwing um, you know lobs, kicking out for to three point shooters with the five out concept that they do sometimes. Um, so I, I think that that's his biggest impact, but I also think he can impact the game really well um, off ball especially if he's ever able to be a, a, a decent defensive player. Like you mentioned, he's been awful defensively um, this season, even worse than he has been in years past. So I think to me, as far as like an off-ball guy, I think he can he can be a connector, obviously, with amazing vision and passing, um, or very good vision and passing, I should say, and with his amazing shooting um, off the catch. So I, I to me, I, I think he is a non- like there's no redundancies with him um, as an offensive player. I think he you can you can plug even if you put like a great superstar level isolation score next to him. I think it would still work really well. He wouldn't have his best impact because his best impact would be with the ball in his hands. But I don't think he would like take away from the impact of the team if that was the case. I think one of the coolest things that the Pacers do is they use him in all parts of the court, and to me that's rare. You see it a lot with Luca. Um, but Luca's far more heliocentric than Halliburton is. But, you know, I've seen Halliburton running side pick and rolls with Obi and Turner. I, obviously, he gets plenty of uh, run at the top of the key. And I think that that helps mitigate um, uh, a heliocentric style because it makes you tougher to predict. It makes you less predictable. Rick, Rick Carlisle is just a – he's a really good offensive mind. I, I feel like he's kind of gotten lost in the shuffle of really good coaches um, because it didn't exactly work out with Luka, and those Mavericks years kind of faded away. But he, he's been very consistently in the upper echelon of coaches, and it's not really surprising to me that he's a he's a good fit with Halliburton. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with that. I've always been a – a fan of Rick Carlos since the Dallas days. So I, I, I would totally agree with that. Um, the, the last thing I just want to say yeah. about these EPM things. Um, so you have a couple guys at the top who are the staples in terms of being in their prime right now. And um, they're in their late twenties and, you know, me and you have talked about, 28, 29 years old, these are your prime years. These are your absolute prime years in a vacuum. So, you know, you've got Embiid, you've got Jokic, you've got um, Donovan Mitchell, you've got Jason Tatum, you've got Luka, again, you've got Devin Booker, Giannis. These are all guys who it's not surprising you see at the top. And then you have a couple of young guys who snuck in there, Chet Holmgren, Tyrese Maxey, 
um, Shangun, SGA, Scotty Barnes. Amazing. That's so cool to see young guys ascending a little bit sooner than they're probably expected to. And yes, I agree with you that there will be probably be some regression from them. More likely, they're more likely to regress from their current regular season impact than a Jason Tatum is. I think Jason Tatum's just safe. If anything, he could get better <laughs> um, from an impact perspective, which is kind of scary for the rest of the league. I just want to point out in the top 15, you have Paul George, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, and LeBron James. Those four are four of the top 15 players in overall regular season impact. LeBron James is fifth. I mean, <laughs> what, what the hell, man? <laughs> Look, I, I'm, I'm not like a LeBron stan. I don't care about the all-time argument, but I am very much an enjoy and appreciate what you have person. And as someone who has a near photographic memory for this shit, Fun fact about me, just random fun fact for anybody who's listening almost three hours in. You can pick any postseason from the last 12 years since the first LeBron in Miami season. And I can, from memory, tell you every team in the bracket of that postseason and what happened in the full playoffs. So I can just like, basically you can pull up the wiki bracket and I can be like, one eight two seven here's how that series went. Here's how that series went. And then just read the whole playoffs for you. So I have a very good memory for this stuff. LeBron had a triple double in his first ever playoff game. That was April of 2006. So everybody listening to this, just think about what you were doing in 2006. And LeBron has basically been at the top of the league since then. That is, there's, there's no comparison for this in NBA history. Kareem won a championship in 1971. Amazing. Kareem was an amazing basketball player. And then the Lakers won another championship in 1988. That was uh, their second. And then they went for the three-peat in 1989. So Kareem had that longevity. But I promise you, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in 1988 was not Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in 1971. That he was... Magic Johnson was the star. And LeBron has been waiting for Anthony Davis to be his Magic Johnson for three seasons now. And for some reason, it's still on LeBron to be like this for the Lakers to even just be eight and six. It's remarkable. And I hope that on some level, anybody who's listening can just be like, this dude's going to retire. I don't know. I don't even want to put a time on it because who knows, but he's going to retire probably in the next, you know, year, two years. And that's going to be the, in my opinion, the league is going to be worse because this is, one of, if not the greatest basketball player of all time. And he's just doing things that we'll never see again. I mean, fifth in the NBA and overall impact. And, and he's the, he's not one of the old, he's the oldest player in the NBA, the oldest player in the NBA. And he career high, true shooting percentage, true shooting percentage is 65%. Like as remember when people were like, Oh, well, I guess LeBron passes prime could be like a worse. Carl Malone just set screens all the time. no, He's just, I mean, he does set screens now. He's a more versatile player, but he's initiating from the perimeter still and like dunking on people. It's just, there's no precedent for this. There's no, you know, everything XJ said earlier about like, well, we've never seen it before. So I'm just going to assume that it's not real. That's been LeBron's last five years. If, if, if that were true, you would assume that everything LeBron has done since 
you know, that last beautiful season in Cleveland when he dragged that terrible team to the finals. None of this is real. How can it be real? You've never seen anything like it before. It's, it's, I just keep using the word. It's remarkable. It's crazy. When these rankings came out, I saw that. I was just like, holy shit, dude. Plus, like he, I mean, you'll know this better than me. I don't think he's been a positive on defense for the last couple of seasons. He's a positive on defense. That's the the whole book on him is LeBron rests on defense because he can't he can't make it through games, and somehow he's a positive impactor for one of the one of the one of the league's best team defenses. That's, so, that's insane. Yeah, just uh, um, LeBron has been con- considered a positive on defense for the past like six or seven oh. years. But yeah. okay, good. Okay, well, I, I thought I, I that I mean that makes it even funnier that. There's a, I mean, that if 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 you want something to sum sum up LeBron James, there it is. There's a whole narrative that I believe that he's just this negative on defense because he doesn't try and. That's yeah, not- he he's definitely not been at his his peak defensively for sure, but he has been like a a, a pretty high level defensive impact player, um, according to EPA. All right, well we are. Who knows how many hours in we are to <laughs> high end theory podcast. Um, I. I'm going to wrap it up. This has been a really long and fun episode talking about so many different topics. The clips are going to come flying out of this one. Um, yeah, I thank you all so much if you're if you're with us and, and, and hanging in there. I'm not going to give a, a code word to, to, to share with us now or else Jeff and I would be uh, losing a lot of money if we, if we kept doing it. But definitely appreciate you so much for still being here and supporting the podcast yeah please drop a comment a like a subscribe anything that you can do is super helpful for us growing and uh yeah any last words you want to say jeff um no you closed it out perfectly thanks to everyone who made it this far and um you know if you if you catch the you know the third act i'm gonna call it because we're literally at the end of the third hour and you hear us you know having a little disagreement i was reminded of how i used to talk to um my father and i still talk to my father and whenever we would debate stuff he would just like intentionally poke holes in my argument and i would just get so frustrated i would just sit there and get so mad and he would be like he, he and I would be like, but how come you don't have to do this? How come where's your burden of proof? And he would say, I don't care about my side. I'm just trying to help you argue better and like be more prepared. And arguing with XJ reminded me of that in the best way. Because like I do feel the only thing that like you'll be able to tell that I just got more and more frustrated as the conversation was going on. And I wasn't frustrated with XJ. I was frustrated with myself for not having like better arguments, for not being able to present more and better evidence. So hopefully next time, you know, I do have, you know, if I do raise a point like that, next year is like, well, wait a second, that where's your proof? I do have the proof or I do, you know, make a better and more substantial argument. And there's value to that. And there's value in that um, self-realization. So I hope people, even if, it wasn't the most substantive, substantive, substantial, Jesus, three hours, substantial discussion. I hope people can take at least that from that, that there's, you know, not only in what you're arguing matters, but how you're arguing it and how you're presenting your point, because the internet and just people you talk to on Twitter, they're coming into this. 90% of them are coming into this with I'm right. And I'll never see your side. So if you're going to have any chance in these waters, you have to just have the most rock solid arguments. 
and I didn't at that moment. Um, so yeah, that's what I had to say. Yeah, I think that's a that's a, a great point and well said. And uh, yeah, I think that there's see there's a lot of value listening to hot hand theory. You're gonna learn how to argue, all kinds of things that are coming out. Um, no, but I think that's well said. And uh, but I, I mean, dude, that's an amazing response. I was basically like, yeah, actually, it was right. And you're like, yeah, I think that's a great point. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I don't, I don't think that, uh, I, I honestly don't think that I was like necessarily like right about anything. Like for instance, like I, to me, the argumentation comes down to you make a claim and either you provide evidence for the claim or you provide the kind of deductive reason why your, your claim is true. Um, and so you have to have like, you know, like a premise, premise, conclusion kind of situation. If the premises are true, then the c- conclusion must be true. Or you have evidence that comes from like, you know, the scientific, um, the, the, the scientific, the, uh, uh, gosh, I can't even think of what it's called now. What is it? The scientific um, method. Sorry. <laughs> the scientific method. Dude, I messed that up last week. So okay, Did you? I feel a little bit less. The scientific yeah. method? Literally the second straight week we've referenced the scientific method and I called it the scientific theory or something i said method, i was gonna was say like, that wait is that i think that was burrowed in my brain yeah. i was gonna say theory for some reason i was like i know yeah. it's not theory anyway um, <laughs> so of course it's of course it's my fault i'm the idiot who put that in your head. <laughs> um yeah so like that's that that's how i look at the argumentation i and i wasn't honestly i wasn't my goal wasn't to just like poke holes in your argument and not, i it genuinely was to be like like when i argue about things like i do want to be swayed to a different perspective but i just need right either. you were you were trying to maximize my point you yeah, were you were trying exactly. to you were trying to maximize the effectiveness of my point that's why right. i was growing frustrated because i wasn't prepared with the ability to make the best case that i could right right yeah um yeah three hours in this has been a great conversation and um if you're still with us for potentially part three or whatever part this is uh yeah much appreciation and we will be back next week to have another long round of 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 anecdotes and tangents and arguments that go on for hours so this has been uh hot hand theory